Just as one. They dressed me up like this. <laughs> and this isn't my nose, it's a false one. Will? Well, we did do the nose. The nose? And the hat. But she is a witch. <laughs> did you dress her up like this? No! 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 no. no. Yes. 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 A bit. A bit. A bit. She has got a wart. What makes you think she is a witch? Well, she turned me into a newt. A newt. Got better. Burn already! Hey, everybody. What's up? Um. We're kind of pressed for time today, so I don't know how how good this <laughs> opening bit. closing is going to be. <laughs> <laughs> Very first thing I need to do. Um, I need to thank Allison Thurman once again, who is a true sweetheart, really cool chick who's came through for us and found this week's guest, which is Mary Sherrod. And we Share have... Share it. Share See, it. I did it again. <laughs> I did it again. And I, I told you I was going to do it, and I still yep. did it. And then when I had her on the air, I still did it again. And you were like, before the show, you're like, no, it's this. So we have a very cool person on this week. It's uh, Mary Sherratt. And- Sher- Mary Sherratt, Rolf. <laughs> God damn it, man. She is here to talk to us about the Pendle Witches. She is an author. She's written several really cool books. Um, she lives uh, in Lancaster. And we wanted to have her on here to talk about the history. We, we bring this up a few times in the show, I think. But one of my pet peeves, and I think it's yours as well, is whenever you talk about witch trials, everybody immediately goes to Salem, Massachusetts for the yep. Salem witch trials. And it's a much more in-depth, much richer history that is much darker than what happened over here. Like what happened over here, it was bad. But it wasn't as bad as what was taking place overseas previously beforehand. Like in America... People here were paranoid about witches and demons and stuff like that. Overseas, they were, you know, banana nutballs weird about witchcraft and demons and things like that. The so, part is there's no Cotton Mather involved in this no, story. No, but this it does got its interesting cast of characters. Like the sure. magistrate really couldn't do anything. But King he James, to. man. Come on. King James was pretty wild. But he it was, was the time. Back. It was the time frame, though. That's true. Yeah, it was. You know, and it, it, like that's we bring up the points of why he's the way that he is in this episode. Yep. Mary is so incredibly well versed and so fun to talk to. I don't want to get into too much of it. We'll talk about it after the interview and whatnot. But I did want to take a second before we get started to this. Also, I want to drop in here that um, Jason did respond with a follow callback from <laughs> Logan's callback oh, from going man. through the drive through at taco dot 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 bell. And uh, I'm going to try to get that call 
at the end at the end of this interview into the show just because this continuing battle over the pronunciation of Taco Bell, which has extended what three four years now, I think. Oh, uh, it's got to be all of three Something at like least. That. And every year, as uh, you know, both of these guys are there to like state. You know, it's like Republicans versus Democrat. You have Taco Bell and Taco dot 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 Bell. And now they've excelled it to the point that they're going through drive-throughs to actually get the man on the street perspective. So, anyways, we'll go into that at the end of the show, and uh, let's roll with it, and let's talk to Mary, and we'll see you guys at the other side. Today we have Mary Charette. Am I saying that properly? Charette's the last name? Uh, Charette. Charette. Okay. Yeah, that's right. Lobo corrected me before the show, but I had it in my head as Charette. So um, you are here to talk to us about the Pendle Witches, and you have written a book called Daughters of Witching of the Witching Hill, which um, it's a work of fiction, correct? It is a work of fiction, but it's based on the real stories of the Pendle Witches of 1612. We've brought up uh, witchcraft and witchcraft and history many times on the show. And as I was saying to you before the show, every time I bring up witch trials to somebody, almost everybody immediately goes to the Salem witch trials. And it's people tend to forget, well, at least in America, people tend to forget that this that was kind of an import from from overseas. And the book that you've written about, The Pendle Witches, deals with the witch trials of, I believe it was 1612. Am I, am I right or am I in the ballpark? 1612, on yes. Yes. So let's start talking about The Pendle Witches. Give us an idea of what witchcraft was like at that time frame. What was magic viewed as? I know that you, you make mention of uh, cunning women and witches. And, you know, it was yeah. atti- the attitudes were yeah. different. So take us there and take us from there what things were like. All right. So the first kind of witch hysteria, witch panic developed um, kind of uh, northern Italy, southern Germany, these alpine regions, these remote isolated valleys. And at kind of broke out on the fault lines of the Reformation. So a lot of people associate witchcraft with the medieval superstition, but that is not true at all. Um, The witch persecutions were a direct um, result of the Renaissance and Reformation. And it took a while for it to reach the British Isles. So for a long time in England, while all these kind of witch trials and witch burnings were raging on the continent, England was relatively unscathed. Also, the English legal system gave more rights to the individual. They didn't have kind of an inquisitorial system of government and courts. You couldn't accuse a, a magistrate could not accuse any random person of witchcraft. They had to wait until a complaint arose from among the community. So for a long time, kind of England was relatively kind of safe and uh, there were few persecutions. But that all changed when King James I um, came to the English throne. He was King James VI of, of Scotland, and then he ascended to the English throne after the death of Queen Elizabeth I. And witch, witch trials in Scotland were a much bigger deal because the laws were different. They actually burned people at the stake in Scotland and England. They could only hang you 
according to the legal system. And so King James I was absolutely obsessed with the occult. And he believed that when he was coming back, um, sailing back from Norway to Scotland with his wife, that witches were trying to um, sink his ship. So he was in a terrible storm and he blamed that on witchcraft. And he persecuted <laughs> the so-called witches of North Berwick. And, you know, he personally saw to this trial and we don't have the exact records of how many people were, were burned, but, he, you know, people were actually burned because of this. And then um, he wrote a book called Demonology. I think that was published in 1598. And that's basically a, um, a witch hunter's handbook. And he expected, when he came to the throne of England, he expected all his magistrates across the country to read this and to carry it out because he seriously believed there were like covens of witches all across the nation seeking to undermine everything. And so Which that's you have today the here. <laughs> yes, sorry, <go> exactly. <laughs> Well, when you say King yeah. James, is this is the same King James that th this is where the King James Bible came from, correct? Am I, am I exactly the King James Bible was published in 1611, and that features the famous verse, uh, "Do not suffer a witch to live." I think in other translations, it's "poisoner." Yeah, well, you know, it's the same. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so. Just to be clear, also, is this this is the same King James that had to deal with the Guy Fox Gunpowder Revolution, right? Exactly. Exactly. Well, he had things stacked against him, didn't he? Yes. This explains the yeah, paranoia. He <laughs> yeah, he was obsessed with both witches and Catholics, and I'll talk about this a little later. They were uh, witchcraft and Catholicism were also conflated in Britain at this time. Okay, that makes so, sense. Then let's go to Scotland now. We've covered things on this show before, like the book The Long Lost Friend, where you had to deal with like uh, I believe they were called clever workers that were that were that were mages and magicians that were based along the line of more along the lines of Christian magic and were herbologists. This seems to cross back over to the other side of the pond, where you have they were called cunning women. So explain what a cunning woman was. Across, uh, this is, um, in this time frame, there were cunning men and cunning women, and they were people who worked with charms and herbal cures to heal people, and they also did things like they would find lost property, they did divination, but they were perceived as working for good. So... Physicians were very expensive, and uh, you know most people couldn't afford them. And even if you could, the the medicines they used were generally poisonous, like mercury. So if you went to your local village herbalist, she'd be far less likely to kill you. And so these people were, you know, they. It was the the herbal charms, the charms went along with the herbalism. So they were practitioners of magic, but they were generally um, not persecuted because they were seen as performing, you know, good work. They were perceived as good and not evil. And witches, so-called witches, were practitioners of magic who were perceived as performing 
acts of evil, acts of harm, okay? And so that's all very good, but then if you're a cunning person and you annoy the wrong person, they could easily turn around and accuse you of witchcraft. So it wasn't also cut and dried. This was like a stock and trade kind of business, I would assume, then. Yeah, most villages would have cunning folk, you know, I mean, those were the people that you went to when you were ill and you needed someone to help you. Um, And this was also kind of came more into prevalence at the time of the English Reformation, because before that, um, the abbeys and the monasteries were centers of of, um, medicinal knowledge and people would go there for healing. But all the abbeys had been sacked. There was no one that normal people could go to for help anymore. So these cunning folk became increasingly important. And what they did technically, legally, was sorcery because they worked with spirits. They worked with familiar spirits. And that was a big central part of witchcraft in the British Isles. It seemed that the center of this person's identity as uh, a cunning person was their relationship to their familiar spirit. And this seems to have differed from um, folk magic as it was practiced in continental Europe. Is, is this the time period where you also have the whole Catholics versus Protestants thing going on, where there was that rift religiously that was taking place as well? Yes. So the the Reformation, the first fault lines that really caused witchcraft trials to break out were on the continent. So uh, northern Italy, southern Germany, Switzerland, all this, France, you get these terrible, terrible witch trials. And then the English Reformation came a little bit later, and it was a little bit milder. I mean, King Henry VIII sacked the monasteries, but the Reformation really did get going until Edward and Elizabeth and um, hardline Protestants really really didn't get going until James because he was a hardline Protestant he was much more hardline than Elizabeth had been so you really see this happening in the reign of James so in Britain Catholics for the most part were viewed as evil then am I am, am I understanding this right <laughs> well It's complicated. Okay, Okay. so the pre-Reformation Church, the pre-Reformation Catholic Church is very, very different from the Catholic Church of today. So they, um, the Catholic Church in the pre-Reformation times had a lot of aspects to it that we might view as magical and mystical. So people would use communion bread and holy water for healing. There were prayers that also worked as charms. You know, you could, you know, people giving holy water to their cow and then saying a certain number of Hail Marys in the belief that that would heal the cow. And that wasn't considered evil that was considered a very sincere person praying you know to heal their cow and that was you know normal mainstream religion also people believe the saints were very active aspects and agents in their lives that they could appeal to for help it was believed that just looking at an image of saint christopher would protect you that whole day from witchcraft and plague and sudden death. And so there were these beliefs and this kind of folk 
charm, folk magic that went along with this mainstream religion that protected people from these perceived evil forces that were lurking everywhere. So that's another thing. In this time frame, everyone, rich or poor, educated or illiterate, believed that magic was real, that, that God was real, that angels were real, but also that devils and demons were real. And, you know, before the Reformation, people thought that if you stay on the right side of this, you know, mainstream religion, and you have all these saints protecting you, and you're good, and, you know, that kind of protects you. But all that was stripped away. People no longer had the saints. They no longer had this kind of folk magic and folk charm to fall back on. They no longer could carry around their St. Christopher's medals because that was considered idolatrous. And so they were left kind of with this stark new religion, but they felt very, very vulnerable to um, the attack of perceived forces of evil, which made them even more paranoid about presumed witchcraft. So the reason I had you go through all of that was to basically establish what the mood was like, what the attitude was, and how people felt at the time period, and the differences of how things are, um, say, what you know, again, just moving up to the Salem witch trials. So having said all of that, mm-hmm. where do we start with the Pendle witches? What's where? I'm assuming you've been there before, you've seen that area, and you've done a lot of research on this. So take us to them, and how do we start in that area? Okay, well, I have to say that I live in the Pendle area. I, the back of my um, house, I'm looking out my study window now, and I can see Pendle Hill in the background. That is so and I badass. I Pendle Hill today. <laughs> Whoa. So I live directly in Pendle Witch Country. So, That's awesome. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's uh, the landscape really inspired me in so many ways. Um, so in August 1612, nine people in Pendle Forest were hanged as witches, all based on evidence given by a young girl. And so... I was, I moved here in 2003 and I was always, you know, if you, it's kind of a haunting landscape. You have to kind of be here to really experience it. But when I first moved here, I didn't know anything about the Pendle witches. I was driving around and seeing witches, images of witches everywhere. And then I heard about the Pendle witches. And at first I thought they were figures of folklore. And then I realized that they were real people who, who were actually hanged you know, in this horrible way because they were caught up in this completely unjust uh, witch hysteria. And so that made me really curious to learn more about them. So I read the official trial transcripts by Thomas Potts. um, You can find it online. The document is called Um, The Wonderful Discovery of Witches in the County of Lancaster. And I read the trial transcripts in this kind of cumbersome 17th century English, but they were just fascinating. They have their spells and charms in there and everything. And I really became fascinated by the ringleader of the witches, a woman named Elizabeth Southerns, alias Old Demdike. She um, actually died in prison before she could even come to trial, so there was no reason to even have her in the trial transcripts. But the official court clerk 
you know, went on and on and on about her. So she really dominates these transcripts, even though she wasn't even alive at the time of the trial. And I just became so fascinated with her because if you read the trial transcripts against the grain, she really stands out as a really powerful character. I'll just read a brief um, quote about what they say about her in the wonderful discovery of witches in the county of Lancaster. Okay. She was a very old woman, about the age of fourscore years, and had been a witch for fifty years. She dwelt in the forest of Pendle, a vast place, fit for her profession. What she committed in her time, no man knows. She was a general agent for the devil in all these parts. No man escaped her or her furies. Oh. Isn't that awesome? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just can't believe they go, they've, in time immemorial, they've always gone after the old people. Like, get rid of them because yeah. they're, you know, they're causing problems or they're perceived as causing problems or they're on land that we want or they go against us for whatever. Just kill them. Call them a witch and kill them. Yeah, but the thing is, is this was a woman yeah, who was yeah. one of the local healers. You know, she was she was who you went to if you needed a doctor and you couldn't get a doctor to come into town. That This is always what has amazed me about this kinds of situations is where these are the people that are supposed to come out and help you and help your child when they're sick or your livestock or, or whatever. They're the people you go to. And in the end, they always end up getting persecuted and destroyed, you know, through, yeah. through no fault of their own. Now, I'm going to guess that she probably had property. I'm going to guess that there was probably somebody else no, in the she area. Didn't. Okay. She did not have property. She was poor, in fact. Oh, yeah, the, that's right. The, um, the tower these that she lived in. Yeah. With the exception of one gentlewoman named um, Alice Nutter, who was kind of caught up in the hysteria, who was not a cunning person. She was just like a local gentry woman who was just caught up in this. All the other individuals who were accused witches were actually quite poor, so there was no property involved. The English law was different. They couldn't confiscate your property if they accused you of witchcraft. Oh, Unlike okay. here. Okay. <laughs> I'm like here, yeah. yeah. In continental Europe, they they totally seized your property, but it was a different legal system in England. Very true. <laughs> so then, how did all this come about? How did she become persecuted and get thrown in jail, and her family get raked across the coals? Well, she'd been practicing, and she came into her powers at the age of 50 when she met her familiar spirit, and she'd been practicing for decades before anybody dared to stand with, you know, stand in her way or, you know, give her any problems. So the definitely the whole climate changed when King James came to the throne. The trials took place uh, less than 10 years after he ascended to the English throne. And the magistrate um, really wanted to use this trial to make himself the witch finder general of Lancashire. Roger Nowell was the name of the magistrate that persecuted them. But as a magistrate, his hands were tied. He couldn't, you know, these women had reputations as cunning women, but he couldn't directly accuse them. He had to wait for problems or for someone else from the community to accuse them. And 
old Demdike, uh, Mother Demdike, had a rival, kind of a frenemy, <laughs> a friend who became a rival named Mother Chaddox, another woman of a similar age. And she was accused of using dark magic, kind of black magic, in the 1590s. Her landlord's son was threatening to rape her daughter. So, according to the trial transcripts, she and her daughter made clay figures in his likeness and gradually crumbled them away until this young man died. As you do, and yeah. That was so. <laughs> so like she had this reputation. Chaddox had this reputation of being a dark witch. She also had a feud with, with Elizabeth Southern's family. So they had these two rival cunning women, kind of, as rivals. And even with this young man supposedly killed by witchcraft, nobody could do anything until somebody actually pressed charges. I think. This uh, this landlord's family decided, you know, not to rock the boat, you know, and so nobody made any complaints. So these women went on with their lives. Nobody in the community complained about them, even though there might have been dark gossip and so on. It took an outsider to set the whole thing off. So in March 1612, there was a traveling peddler named John Law was just walking through the Pendle region. He met uh, Mother Demdike's granddaughter, a young woman in her teens called Allison. And she wanted him to open his pack um, because she wanted to buy pins off him. And he just saw this ragged young woman and thought she might be a thief and thought she wouldn't have money to pay him anyway. So he um, refused to open his pack for her. And she got angry and, I guess, called him some names. And they had this verbal altercation. And she yelled something at him. And then he walked on. He'd walked a few hundred paces. And then he fell stark lame in half his body, to use the words of the trial transcripts. So this man in his 50s or 60s kind of fell over, and he was lame in half his body. And she, this young woman, Allison, ran to see him, and she was absolutely horrified. And he lost the powers of speech. Stroke. And today, Mm. if that happens, we know that it's a... It's a stroke. Yeah, a stroke. Yeah. Yes. Sixteen twelve, <laughs> if it happens. <laughs> it's a witch. So she, this young woman, seemed to truly believe that her anger had lamed the man, and she felt horrified. So there were witnesses who saw it. They took him to the nearest inn, and she just fell on her knees and begged his forgiveness. And he forgave her, and he wasn't going to press charges, but his son came from Halifax, Yorkshire, to take him home, and it was the son who insisted on pressing charges. So Alison was arrested, and Roger Nowell, the magistrate, managed to trick her through leading questions into implicating her grandmother and the rest of the family. And the rest is the tragedy that you know, resulted in the trial. Well, huh. tell us about the trial a little bit then, because how many of these girls were on trial? How many, how many members of the family were on trial and how did the trial go? 
Okay, so the trial, there were 12 people that were tried in Lancaster and one in Yorkshire. So according to King James's demonology, you had to look out for covens of 13. The whole coven thing seemed to be more of a continental European thing than an British thing, but the magistrate decided to find this mythical 13, so he rested 12 people um, around the, and just one lived over the county line, which is very close, um, in Yorkshire, so she was tried in Yorkshire, but they were just a loose group of family and friends. Some of the people accused had no previous uh, reputation as cunning folk. They were just innocent bystanders caught up in the trial. I should say, first Allison was arrested and she immediately tried to implicate her grandmother's rival, Chaddox. So Chaddox was arrested and her daughter because the magistrate had a grudge against them anyway for supposedly killing their landlord. And then Mother Demdike was arrested, her daughter, Allison's mother, Allison's brother, James, who judging from the verbal statements he gave was not quite right he might have had learning difficulties he said some things that don't quite sound within the realm of normal so we think he might have had learning difficulties and then when these people were arrested a a group of concerned neighbors met at Malkin Tower, and then they, um, where Mother Demdike lived, and then they were arrested Jeez. as the supposed like coven, <laughs> even though they were just concerned neighbors and friends. And one of them was this gentlewoman, Alice Nutter, who had nothing to do with cunning craft. She was just this concerned neighbor who happened. She was one of the people that actually had money, but uh, probably the only one. And so, yeah, so they all went to trial. One person was found, um, uh, have to look back, one person was allowed to go free because she was only accused of killing a horse and not a human. <laughs> but, you know, even the people with no previous reputation as cunning folk were accused. And so it was just really, really nasty business. Now, I had read somewhere in one of the trials that there was somebody that said that they'd saw two Dobermans and one of them turned into a witch and the other one turned into a boy and then somehow a horse came into play or something like that. Was that the learning disabled person? That, yeah, that sounds like James. Yeah, he also saw, um, he heard a great number of cats and so forth, yowling like a great number of cats. So he saw lots of things, yeah, horses and dogs. I have to say that uh, Mother Demdike's familiar could take the form of a dog. He could shapeshift between the form of a young man, a dog, and a hare. Hmm. And yeah. so... There was a belief that each cunning person had their familiar spirit who could shapeshift between human and animal form. But yeah, James gave these fairly, you know, out there descriptions. And it also has to be said that when these individuals were arrested in March and April of um 1612, they were kept in the well tower of Lancaster Jail until the trials in August, and they were kept in this 
the cellar of this tower in a room without any natural light. So they were chained to a ring in the floor in utter darkness and kept there. Twelve people. There were two men and ten women kept there. Um, Mother Demdike actually died, probably of dysentery or something, because of the horrible conditions they were kept in. They were uh, treated very badly. I mean, torture was not legal, but they did not have any sanitary facilities. They weren't given any good food. And so... James Device, at the time of the trial, he was so weak, it took two grown men to carry him, you know, into the courtroom. So also those weird evidence he gave could be based on that he just completely lost his mind in prison. Yeah, because I, I think he also mentioned something about he ran into a barn and there were ropes hanging from the ceiling and they started pulling on the ropes and then all these incredible varieties of food were falling out of nowhere and... Um, there was all kinds of crazy stuff that he was saying. Yeah, yeah. Now, something else about this that I found, uh, well, rather damning or strange or however you want to call it, was that there was a nine-year-old girl um, related to one of them that actually gave testimony at the trial, which I believe is what actually was used to condemn them, correct? Yes, correct. That was Janet. She was Allison and James's youngest sister. And she was nine years old so all these people were condemned on the words you know on the evidence given by a nine-year-old who was clearly manipulated by the magistrate so maybe she had some grudge or anger against her family and she was then turned against them by the magistrate you know he took her to live in his beautiful manor house in a much better way than she was used to living because her family was very poor and he he manipulated her into condemning her entire family and the sad the really tragic thing is is that she was later accused of witchcraft in the second pendle witch trial in the 1630s oh how about that (laughs) yeah on evidence given by a 10 year old boy who fabricated the whole story because he was caught out too late bringing back his mother's cows. So he told this lie about witches to avoid being whipped. And by the time he admitted his perjury, several women had already died in prison. Was Jenna the one that said that she saw her mother talking to a dog named Ball or something like that? Or the yeah, dog yeah. in service of yeah. Satan or something? Yeah, so the familiar spirits could take the form of dogs. So her mother had a familiar who took the form of a dog named Ball. <laughs> I've, I've heard that mentioned in other folklores and things like that, this, this demon dog named Ball of some kind or another. It wasn't a demon. It was more like a spirit helper. If you look at uh, English fo- or British folk magic, um, you couldn't work this magic without this otherworldly ally who took the form of a familiar. And it seems, I don't think it's really related to demons or devils. It seems to be more closely related to the lingering belief in fairies and elves. Um, because especially in Scotland and also even in Lancashire, some cunning folk said that their familiar spirit was like the queen of elf fame or a man sent to them by the Queen of Elfame. So it seemed that there 
this so-called fairy faith that existed alongside mainstream Christianity also kind of was woven into this belief in familiar spirits. Does the Green Man play into this at all already? I've heard tell of that legend many times. Yes, um, not into this particular trial, maybe others. Um, if you're interested in the subject, there's a really good book by Emma Wilby called Cunning Folk and Familiar Spirits. She did this whole scholarly study on it, and she also wrote a huge monumental book about the visions of Isabel Gowdy, the famous Scottish witch. Mm-hmm. So I'm that's that's that. really amazing. So she, um, Emma Wilby, basically says that it's very similar to... Um, shamanism and other cultures you have this person that works with the spirit world and they have their otherworldly spirit ally who's like a spirit wife or a spirit husband it's usually the opposite sex to the sex of the practitioner although not always and they have this familiar spirit for life you know that per that spirit sticks to them for life and they can only work magic in tandem with this spirit That'd suck if you had like a toucan or something, maybe. I don't know. Um. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's a low blow. Um, so were there other any other witches around that time of notable fame or anything like that that followed similar paths? In 1612, I'm not, I'm obviously um, in the English Civil War, you had Matthew Hopkins and all those terrible witch trials where he took advantage of the anarchy of the English Civil War to break the law and actually burn women instead of just, in quotation marks, hanging them. But um, yeah, it was the... There weren't as many recorded witch trials in England as there were on the continent. Well, but obviously the Pendle witch trial stands out. Do you know how many actually ended up? You know, like how many women actually died in these witch trials? Over is there is there an official record of that? I would have to look that up. I don't know offhand, okay. but. Um, yeah, it was uh, nine individuals uh, at the Pendle Witch Trials, and then over the border in Yorkshire, an, another woman associate with arrested on the same thing, but she happened to live over the county line, Janet Preston. She was hanged in York. So, were there any burnings of the stakes or anything, or is that just folklore? No, that was against um, English law. You could burn people at the stake in. Scotland, but not in England. Oh. You could only hang them, so See, they were no, hanged. I, I, I've had numerous discussions with people over and over again. There's, I live in Connecticut, and Salem, Massachusetts is just up the road from us. And uh-huh. over and over and over again, I've, oh, you know, our people were burned at the cemetery. No, that, that didn't happen. That's not a thing. No one was burned here. No one was burned here. I yeah, tried to they explain. Were <laughs> they were hung. They were crushed. They were, uh, to a lesser extent, you know, they were left to starve. Some were drowned. No one yeah. was burned. So every time I hear yeah. people go on about burning at the stake, I'm like, unless you're in Scotland, it didn't happen. Or continental Europe. True. <laughs> yeah. So. Now, now we, go ahead. I'm go. Sorry. No, go ahead. Go. Yeah, I've, I've been yapping the whole show. It's your turn. <laughs> <laughs> now, just. As an aside, um, did you? There's uh, hex magic here in Pennsylvania area of the United States that uh, 
has a striking similarity to what you're describing that the Pendlewitch were accused of. Are there any correlations between that, or is it just... I'm not a, a, the hex magic of Pennsylvania, the Pennsylvania Dutch. I I don't know if I'm familiar enough with what they do to make that comparison. Okay, there's a they they had this they had similar things. They had uh, charmed folk that went hand in hand with the religious people that were here. It wasn't looked upon as something bad. You know, you'd put a hex on your building to be able to help your crop, or you'd be able to give people. Um, you know, herbs and salves and balms to be able to help them. They were they were pretty much what you're describing of what was done overseas around the same time. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. It probably evolved from those you know similar culture and similar time. Yeah, because they were out of Germany. That's the you yeah. Know. But I think throughout Europe they must have had people that were you know proficient in herbalisms and charms and cures. I mean, that, it makes uh, sense. Sounds- it sounds very similar, and then, yeah, and generally working in tandem with whatever mainstream belief system was going on there. I got to ask you this. I've been to Salem. It's one of my favorite places to go, but I find it very funny and ironic that this was a city that was so anti-witchcraft, and it's where the witch trials took place, that now when you go there, you can't toss a stone without hitting some kind of witchcraft store, or it's, it's you know, it's very, hey, welcome to witchcraft land, is basically what Salem is for the most part now. So, in trying to get rid of witches, they inadvertently made it like the witch capital of America. Is that the same way where you're at now? Is that kind of, is that what your area is, like, is it a tourist spot for that kind of thing, you know? Yeah, it's not like a major tourist destination, but if you drive or walk around here, you see images of witches everywhere. Um, there's a shop called Witches Galore. Um, there's a, a Pendle Witch Walk you can go on. Um, there was for the 400th anniversary of the 1612 trials. There were different kind of commemorative events. People climbed Pendle Hill together and they had kind of a witchcraft conference to discuss it on an academic level. So yeah, it's it's huge. I, I often feel that they really kind of, their spirits survive in the landscape. I mean, they couldn't be driven out here. They kind of, they're, they're part of the ancestral spirit of the land, and they kind of, you know, it's their place now. <laughs> so it's, it's viewed more as a positive heritage thing around there now for the most part. Oh, I, I definitely, definitely. The irony. <laughs> yeah. Kinda, where was, but, where was you know, this love back have, then? <laughs> the witches have the last word, so yay, or the accused witches. I don't think they perceive themselves as witches, but the cunning women have the last word. You are an author. <laughs> uh, you were put in touch with us through a listener uh, of our show who ran into it at a writer's conference. Does a yeah. lot of your writing have to do with witchcraft and fairy folklore and things like that? You know, if this, if you want to, you can talk about your other books and stuff like that now to put yourself out there. Daughters of the Witching Hill is the, the book we've been talking about. That's about the Pendle Witches of 1612, and it's told from the perspective of Mother Demdike and her granddaughter. I t- tell it first person. Um, I thought it was really important that the these women, Allison and her grandmother, Mother Demdike, had what history denied them, their own voice. So it's 
told in both their voices. Um, the other books that I have out, I followed Daughters of the Witching Hill with something that might sound completely different, but it's uh, surprisingly similar in some aspects. It's Illuminations, a novel of Hildegard von Bingen. Incidentally, it's St. Hildegard's feast day today. This uh, famous 12th century visionary nun and abbess, she composed beautiful liturgical music that's still being performed today and she was also a great herbalist and healer she wrote a whole compendium of kind of herbal medicine and interestingly enough she also healed with charms and gemstones as well as herbs so i think if she hadn't been a nun and if she had been living in 16th century europe she probably would have been burned as a witch so she's a very interesting person and then my most recent book that's out in paperback now is the dark lady's mask it's about um the Dark Lady of Shakespeare's Sonnets, Amelia Bassano Lanier, who was also the first English woman to become a professional poet. And this is set in the reign of uh, late Elizabethan, early Jacobean era. So we've also got this element of witchcraft and folk magic that's a very strong part of the storyline. So if you like witches, I think there's enough in there to um, intrigue the reader, too. Hmm. You sound like somebody who's very in tune with the part of the world that you're in, that you've really embraced your surroundings and the heritage of where you are. I got to ask, how does a person, you're from Minnesota, correct? Yeah. How does a person <laughs> from Minnesota, because I've been to Minnesota, Bemidji's a fun place, we'll say. Not really, but hey. Um, <laughs> it's cold. How does a person from Minnesota end up where you are doing what you're doing and becoming so entrenched in this folklore and, and, and rich heritage and history? It's interesting. I mean, wherever I live, I try to really get into the kind of land and the stories of the land. Just uh, history is kind of layer on layer of of all the people that lived in any certain place before me. So I really try to kind of, if, I hope it doesn't sound too new age, but kind of speak to the spirit of the land and really get a sense of all these people that lived here before me. Um, I've lived most of my life in other countries. I lived in Germany for a long time. And then uh, we moved to California very briefly, my husband and I, and then he got transferred to uh, northern England for his job. And that brought us to where we are now in Pendle Witch Country. And we've been living here since 2002. And yeah, so it's just the landscape is so numinous here you know we were walking across pendle hill today there are parts of it that feel so remote you know as you know europe is densely populated the uk is very densely populated but there are parts of pendle hill that feels so remote and so ageless you know it could be you could be in the 1500s you know it just feels so windswept and you can really kind of feel the voices of history there have the locals embraced your your love of the culture and you know how do how do they see you or do this do they see you kind of like this outsider coming I, I know it's a strange question but do they see you as this outsider just coming in or are they you know are they are they really proud that you're you know doing this to the culture and pushing it out there 
Well, the the book was very well supported here, so I, I've done lots of local awesome. events that have been very well attended. So I'm very grateful for that, and it's it's so, you know, a lot of my well, all of my writing involves lots of research and like sometimes years of research. But for this book, I could just go to my local library's local history section and everything was there. And I was on the site where it all happened and I could literally walk in my character's footsteps. And that was so amazing. You know, yeah, you how often your back you window, it's right there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I look out my window, I see my shed in a tree, you know. <laughs> so... Um, where can people find these books? Are they all available on Amazon or, you know, what's your website? Yeah, they're all available on Amazon. And my website is um, com. That's uh, www.marysharrett, that's M-A-R-Y-S-H-A-R-R-A-T-T.com. And we will provide a link to that in the show notes for this show as well. I really want to thank you for coming on here and talking about this. This has been fantastic. You're very well versed in this. You've been a real pleasure to talk to. And I really, really appreciate it because there's like a seven hour time difference between us. So, you know, setting this up was kind of tricky and everything, but it's, it's been a real joy to talk to you and hear about this. I really appreciate it. Was. It was very informative. Thank you very much. It was my pleasure to talk to you both. Thank you. Thank you. I got one question for you, Ro. If Taco Bell is one word, why is Bell capitalized? You might ask yourself that. And whoever that dude was that did a good job with the drive-through, that was that was pretty top-notch, funny. But yeah, if it was one word, if Taco Bell was one word, it would be capital T only, and then the whole thing. But since Taco is capitalized and Bell is capitalized, wouldn't that constitute two separate words? Just throwing that out there, spitballing here. Anyways, let me know what you think. See ya. And another thing, I don't know if I would be taking the word of a minimum wage taco flipper on the pronunciation of Taco Bell. Probably be a question for somebody you know in corporate. My God, are you still talking? Thought. Anyways, see you guys. Want to get in contact with the show or listen to back episodes? It's easy. Go to www.projectarchivist.com. On the right side of the page, you'll find links to our archives, as well as links on how to get onto our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter. If you want to leave a voicemail for us, it's 734-681-0459. Yes, we do listen to all of them. Or if you want to talk to Lobo directly, you can call 203-212-9975. Yes, that will in fact put you in touch with his cell phone. If he's available, he will take your call and talk to you. If you're just looking to send us an email, you can do that at projectarchivist at gmail.com. Don't forget to look for us on iTunes under the podcast section, or you can stream us right to your phone with the Stitcher Android app for free. And that was Mary, a transplant from Minnesota in America. Over the Gopher State, the, the land of a thousand lakes. The Gopher State, which you can't find that clip for me. I no, I can't. If you find hey, people it, people who listen know. to ESPN know what I'm talking about. Oh, she was a blast to talk to. I, I was getting nervous because, as again, me and you text back and forth during the show. We've got our phones set on silent, and we were getting about the halfway mark, and I'm like, I don't know how much more content we've got because she's explained this so well. 
and so descriptively and so thoroughly that I'm like, we might be running out of content here. So what are we going to do? <laughs> she's intelligent. Man. She was that fiercely intelligent. intelligent. She was really cool. She's got a video up on YouTube because when, because well, me and you haven't read her books. Neither one of us have read her books. We're familiar with the folklore of it. There, there's so much history in Europe that has to do with witchcraft and how witchcraft works and how it ties into fae folklore. And, you know, it's, mm -hmm. it was a different time and, and faith and magic were different then. It was like, you know, like we have our technology now that was their technology for lack of a better term on how to describe it. So there's more of this stuff out there. And I find myself all the time going in and looking at this kind of stuff and researching this kind of stuff. And, I, you know, I've, I've always wanted to do something along these lines. And you've got your magical roots. Um, sorry. Yeah. Sorry about the Sorry about the uh, the toucan joke. I had to talk. No, nah, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> that was an inside joke that I knew you would get. I was just waiting for the right moment to toss that in there. And she was like, oh, yeah. Ha, ha, and she's got no idea what we're talking about. No. You know. <laughs> But you've uh, got your, you know, you've got your magical roots and heritage in your family and, and it's different traditions and things like that. And, and I go back to how my fascination is how all these different things all tie together and how they're separate and different, but yet they're the same. So anytime I have an opportunity to talk to somebody about this kind of stuff, I try to jump at it as quick as possible. But, um, again, we had the problem with, I was like, well, you know, time is not the same everywhere. So we'll set it up for this time here. And I think there's a six hour time difference and there was a seven hour time difference. So fortunately she was cool enough to wait, you know, and set it out. Cause we've lost a couple of guests because of that. Yeah. So anyways, um, that's pretty much for everything I've got to say. Oh yeah. One other thing I do need to send a shout out. Very rarely will I ever, ever do this, but our server bills are coming up next month. So if you guys want to support the show and jump over to Patreon and toss a couple of bucks in there and listen to what shows we've got up in there, um, I'm going to put something else up there next month. I've just, this month has been really, really busy for us because the kids have gone back to school. I've got this trip coming up this week with Chuck down to Cincinnati. I'm Columbus. I'm sorry. So if you guys, if, if you want to jump into jump in and toss a couple of bucks our way, just, you know, follow, go over to Patreon. Uh, we've got a link on our, our, our show page for it over. You can click on to it, take you to our Patreon site. If you want to join up for whatever you want to join up for, you want to toss a couple of bucks, you want to toss five, whatever. We did pick up another Patreon last month whose name, I'm so sorry, I'm forgetting his name right now. I'm drawing a blank <laughs> on it. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I'm terrible at it. Um, but yeah, if you could join up and, you know, toss us a couple of bucks, I'd really appreciate it because if not the, the podcast constable will be here within 15 minutes to remove us from podcasting land. And, uh -huh. you know, I'll have to start driving for Uber or Lyft to be able to what? pay for the show. And, you know, it's, it could be a bad situation because I could have somebody in my family that has hemorrhoids or something. I don't know. I don't know. There's a lot of inside jokes right there. And there is, and they're all aggravating. <laughs> and a lot of you people will get those inside jokes, and I won't say too much about it. But just remember that podcasting constables could kick us out within 15 minutes notice. Jesus so, having said Mary that, jokes. yes, if there's one thing you guys could do, if you want to help us out, we'd really, really appreciate it this month. If you can't or you don't want to or whatever, you know, that's fine, too. It's cool. You know, it's not like it's not like I'm not going to be able to renew the show if we don't get any Patreons. So, having said all of that, um, we don't know if we're going to have a new show or not next week because I'm going to be out of town, and Lobo here doesn't know if he's going to be able to record one or not. So We'll see. There's a lot of stuff coming up. Dance dance started all over again. Yeah. 
Yeah, we're both juggling a lot of balls in the air right now. So. And Girl Scouts started again. Oh, and all three of them are in. Oh, I'm so glad I'm done with all that. So <sighs> glad I'm done with all that. Why don't you rub it in a little more? Why don't you want to lay down so you can step on my neck oh, harder? I went, I went through those years. <laughs> my wife was a my wife was a, oh, was a Girl Scout mom or you know, a pack a troop leader a pack leader. That's Boy Scouts. Den mother. Yeah, den mother. Yeah, that's for Boy Scouts. Uh-huh. Um but my, my wife was, you know, she was a troop leader for a while. Both of my daughters were in Girl Scouts. My uh, youngest was was in Girl Scouts right up until she couldn't be in it anymore. She was through it all all through the school years. I've done the cookie sales. If you follow me on Facebook, you've seen the pictures of me wearing the banana costumes, holding up the signs saying Samoas. I still have some boxes in my freezer. I do. The, the problem is, is that they're charging. How much are they charging for Girl Scout cookies now? $5 a box. Five? Oh, it's more yep. than that up here. What? It's the same price everywhere. I swear it's more than $5 up here. Either that or the boxes are getting smaller. Maybe that's The boxes are getting smaller. Absolutely, the boxes are getting smaller. And what sucks is you can go to the grocery store because the Keebler elves now make virtually- They're the ones who make it anyway. They're the ones who are- Keebler is the company that makes those cookies. Really? I thought it was some yes. other company. No. Keebler is the company that makes those cookies. That's their- they are contracted to make their cookies, and they only make them for short runs for that period of time. Are you and sure? And then that's it. I'm no, I have no idea. <laughs> no, I because I swear there was a different company that made oh. the cookies, and they had uh, it's it was a regional kind of thing. They had different oh. regions to make them. I can nope. totally see Keebler doing it. I can see the guys in the trees making the cookies. We're talking about the Keebler elves. elves they're, they're son. Elves. <laughs> I can see Josh Cutchin researching Keebler elves right now for this next fave folklore book. Which I hear that tubas scare them out of their tree. Exactly, exactly. Um, what was it I used to give him crap about? Uh, Leonard Skinner. Yes. I can't remember right. what song. I can't remember what song it was. I used to tease him about playing on the tuba. I got a little bone to pick with him because is a division of Keebler, which is owned by Kellogg. I'm going to call Josh out because he was supposed to come on the show and then he backed out on me in a couple of days ago again. And then he promised me he's not a, he's got some kind of a gig or something going on that date. Uh, I I, I completely understand why, but he won't give me a follow-up date so we can actually get him back on the show again. So Josh, I'm calling you out live on the air right now. And all these people are hearing it. So (laughs) no, don't go out and buy Josh's books because he's a terrible person and he plays shitty tuba. No, I'm kidding. Whoa! I'm kidding. No. I'm There's kidding. no such thing as shitty tuba. It's all awesome. <laughs> all right. We're babbling, as we always do at this point. Um, yeah, check out the website. I'll have a link to Mary's books up on there. Again, please try, you know, if you, be, if you would like to throw us some money and help us out to keep our show server costs for sure popping up. I think our domain name is coming up next month, too. I can't remember. Uh-oh. It's it's I'll, I'll deal with it, you know, whatever. But if anybody would like to call, toss a couple of bucks our way and help us out for them, not even all the time, just 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 this one time a year, just toss us something, you know, that'd be great. Something, something, anything, anything. And make say sure anything. You, we'll get boxes of nonsense shipped to us. What's the other part of the email? Make sure you hit the button that says not for goods and services so we get, don't get a dinged additional fee or something. I don't remember. Again, the people that know the joke will know the joke. All right. Lobo. I, I'm out. This is Roe from Detroit. Peace. Lobo from Connecticut, thoughts and prayers, and I don't often say that to the people of Florida and Texas. Oh, yeah, yeah. We've had we that. got Jose coming towards us now. Boom. Really? That's the next yeah. one. That is coming in, huh? That's the next yeah, one? It's, it depends on what model you look at. Either we're going to get hit or there's going to be some wicked surf, yo. <laughs> you, know, you know what? I, I got to cover one more story. I do. Oh, Jesus. I got to. I've got to cover this story. It's stupid Irma news because as, as we oh had the last God. weekend, and you know this story. 
If, if nobody knows this story yet, they shouldn't. They're going to hear about it now. This was coming from MLive.com. Florida sheriff warns people not to shoot weapons at Hurricane <laughs> Irma. This is so stupid. <laughs> I guess this this was a for real thing because it was also covered by Breitbart News. News. So if Breitbart's covering it, you know it's not fake news. Real news. Uh, a Florida Sheriff Department had to warn residents not to fire their weapons at Hurricane Irma. Remember, uh, the reminder came from a Pasco County Sheriff's Office late Saturday after someone created an event on Facebook inviting people to shoot at the Category 4, four storm as it approached the U.S. mainland. I can just see all of these rednecks land across the beach, you know, with their guns. Second Amendment! First Amendment! Whatever the amendment is, Whoa. boom, 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 you know, shooting Second. at the clouds. Whatever amendment that is. I know. I know what it is. I'm just throwing stuff out there right now to make it even stupider. The Tampa Bay Area Sheriff's Office tweeted, do not shoot weapons at hashtag Irma. Uh, you won't make it turn around, and it will have very dangerous side effects. Uh, the Facebook event page created by two Florida men reads, Yo, okay, this is all capitals. Yo, so the goofy dot dot dot, let's show Irma that we shoot first, according to the Associated Press. More than 80,000 people indicated that they were going to or interested in the event. The people, 80,000 people lined up on the beach with guns, folks. Of course, none of the, this had to be trolled. These, I, I would have trolled it if I knew about it. Uh, more than 8,000 people indicated they were going to or interested in the event. The people who created the page later said they didn't think people would take it seriously. Uh, then they've got Pasco Shawnee Sheriff with his tweet and a graphic of some kind showing the tornado where people are shooting it in there. And apparently the bullets are supposed to ricochet, ricochet around somehow inside the hurricane, which I don't I don't quite see how that happens, but okay, whatever. Air Force wins. Magic and Keebler elves? Sure, no problem. The Pasco County Sheriff Office has been incredibly has has been incredibly social media savvy as it prepared for Hurricane Irma to take landfall on Sunday. In addition to tweeting several times an hour about shelter availability, which, you know, good on them. They, they really seem to have this together down there for this one. Mm-hmm. In addition to tweeting several times an hour about shelter availability and how to prepare for the storm, it's done some tw- uh, Twitter high fives after actor Seth Rogen. It's now invited the actor and others for a celebrity tweet along once the hurricane is over. And that's pretty much where it ends. So Ugh. the lesson here is don't go shooting your guns into weather patterns because just they're just don't understand why <laughs> I just, I don't get it. That's like those morons that we're going to turn fans on. Yes. That's another one I was going to read, but I'm not I mean, going to. It's not how it works. It's not how it works. There was the guy that was, that, did you hear about the sign language guy that was putting gibberish out there? Is yeah, I saw that. That's awesome. Sign language <laughs> interpreter used gibberish warned of bears, monsters during Hurricane Irma update. The officials at Manatee County, Florida, are under fire after an interpreter for deaf warned about pizza and monsters during an emergency briefing related to Hurricane Irma. The interpreter, Marshall Green, a lifeguard for the county, has a brother who was deaf, according to the Daily, Daily Moth. A video news site that provides information via American Sign Language. Uh, Green uh, was used as an interpreter for September 8th press conference regarding the incoming storm and possible evacuations. Members of the deaf, deaf community said Green mostly signed gibberish, referencing pizza monsters and using the phrase help you at the time to use Big Bear, Bear Big during the event. Other information signed to viewers was incomplete, experts said. The county typically uses interpreters for 
from Viscom, a professional sign language interpreting service. Viscom owner Charlene McCarthy told local media she was not contacted before providing services. Well, you get what you pay for for the press <laughs> conference, and that Green was apparently not fluent in American sign language. I had and- a coupon. <laughs> oh, I got this guy off Groupon. He'll work just fine. Uh, Manatee County spokesperson Nick Azara told the Brand- Brandon 10 Herald Green was asked to interpret during the update rather than have no no one sign eh, rather than have no one signing. The county has requested an interpreter and public information assistance from the state, as Aziz- Azizazura said. I don't know. Why didn't they just have like a teleprompter underneath with like, you know? Come on! I think uh, doing gibberish and warning about bears and monsters and pizza oh, during the hurricane yeah. was far more productive. 100 mile an hour winds followed up by pizza and monsters. How great is that? <laughs> well, you know. Sheer force bears are in the area. I mean, come on now. That's what he said? I don't. It might as well have. I'm just as good a sinner than he is. <laughs> Jesus, man. All right, let's wrap this up. Peace out, folks. Bye-bye. I don't know. When I look out my window Many sights to see And when I look in my window So many different people to be That it's strange So
different people.